I want to ask a question. Uh, and you can actually answer this one. It's not rhetorical. What was the most popular car around the year that you learned how to drive? Mustang. A Mustang? A Volkswagen Beetle. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, a 55 Chevy. Was it a Nomad? Whoa. <laughs> well, uh, actually, interesting, because the year that I learned to drive, I think around the time I learned to drive, the Beetle was the most popular car. It, was the, it just seemed to be everywhere. That's a 1964 Volkswagen Beetle. And uh, it set you back about, uh, about $1,600. Uh, probably including the tax and everything. It, was a, it wasn't much. There were 30,000 of them sold in Canada alone in 1964. Yeah, that's a fair amount of cars. Uh, and it was a real screamer. Right? Um, guys, you'll understand this, right? You, you'll understand this one, Chris. Zero to 100 kilometers. Okay? That's how they measured the acceleration rate of a car. It used to be zero to 60, but that's zero to 62. The Volkswagen Beetle in 1964 did zero to 100 kilometers in, wait for it. <laughs> wait for it. 27 and a half seconds. <laughs> now compare that to, say, um, uh, a Tesla 3, like Marilyn's driving back and forth these days, uh, that does it in about just under 7, somewhere around 6. Yeah, it's changed a little. But what the Beetle did, and the reason I put that up there, is it secured Volkswagen's place in the North American car market. That and between that and the Volkswagen van, which is both the only two models that, that really sold lots. But markets change and regulations change. And those early Beetles actually put out a ton of pollution. They, you, you, you stood behind even those little cars when they were running, you just about gagged. It was so much exhaust. Those early Beetles, yeah. Now, now the passenger cars today, this is an encouraging, 98 to 99% cleaner running than that car. That, that put out about 1 to 2% of the pollution that that old car did. But with those stringent standards come higher costs. Now, SUVs are more popular than cars today. Most people don't know that when they first came out in the 1990s, you know why they became so popular? Because the car manufacturers discovered a loophole in the law. They found out that cars and that trucks and SUVs were classed as trucks didn't have to qualify for the, the car standards. So they, they, they were cheaper to produce and they were more profitable. So the company really started, companies started really promoting SUVs. And now, what do you, you hardly see, there are some cars that are being, uh, companies are stopping to produce cars now. But that's, that's a bit of a, not a quite rabbit trail. But other companies still produce cars, but because it was so hard to meet some of these new standards, they tried to cheat the system. This week, the Canadian government announced that Volkswagen AG will pay a record 
$196.5 million in fines because they rigged its 2008 to 2015 vehicles to cheat the emission standards in Canada. Um, this is a 2009, and I love the wrap on the car. It says clean diesel, <laughs> not hardly, because it was faked. The cars were, were programmed so that they would give great readings when they were actually exceeding the specs quite a bit. Now, why am I asking this? Who do you trust anymore? If car manufacturers, and by the way, Volkswagens had to pay over $2 billion in fines worldwide for what they did. But they're still going. But who can you trust anymore? Well, maybe not auto execs. Just, just saying. But, but what about other leaders? How many people trust politicians? I don't see a lot of hands. But, but that actually confirms what the Ipsos Reid poll said. In Canada, 2017, 2019, a poll done last May, 63% of Canadians don't believe politicians can be trusted. That's almost two out of three people in Canada don't believe we can trust our leaders. So that begs the question, can any leaders be trusted completely? Yeah, I found one. Jesus. That's why I chose the title for the series that we've gone through this year. Jesus, the leader you can trust. Because Jesus was and always will be good news. Because what you see with Jesus is what you get. He delivers on everything he says. If he has promised it, it will happen. And I think that's why Mark started his gospel with the words at the top of the note page. They said, the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Everything Mark wrote about Jesus is good news. It's the story of a leader we can trust. He delivers the goods. The unusual thing about Mark, though, is that Mark's good news, the unusual thing is that the ending of Mark's account doesn't sound all that good. A group of women running away from the tomb, scared out of their minds. End of story. Now, we, as I said, we, we, we began this calling this Jesus the leader you can trust for a good reason. But what we finish with today is we're going to be challenged to remember Jesus' words about what it meant to be a disciple. And, and he put it in very, very precise terms. He said, being a disciple means to follow him. Sometimes not knowing where that's going to lead. But a disciple of Jesus is, 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 isn't just someone who believes the truth of the gospel. It's someone who follows Jesus' lead and acts. When Jesus rose from the dead, everything changed. It was the beginning of a new day. I think maybe that's one of the reasons they called Jesus the bright and morning star, refer to him as the day spring. But it had been one that no one had ever seen before, a resurrection. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, we, we think we know the story completely. Show us again as something we may have missed 
that we will great, have even greater appreciation for you than we have before. Oh, yeah, amen. Amen, that's all I ask. Okay, so as we know, Jesus died on a Roman cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Around three in the afternoon, uh, hours after, the, the, uh, just, just hours before the Sabbath began, and the Passover, which would have been starting at sunset on that day, because it was a Friday. And we know that Joseph of Arimathea, who was part of the council, uh, who was also a secret follower of Jesus, came and asked for the body. Because he wanted to bury it before the sun set and before Passover began. Because once Passover began, as with every Sabbath, no work could be done except the preparing of, a, of a, very, a small amount of work to prepare meals. Now, Joseph had to work fast because there wasn't much time to spare, so he took the body and he wrapped it in a linen sheet and he put it in a brand new tomb, a rich man's tomb. And, and most scholars believe it may even have been his own that he had prepared for, for eventuality. The stone that was sealed would have been about five to six feet in diameter, and it would have been in a carved trench and rolled down that slight inclined trench to seal the, the mouth of the tomb. And it would have weighed hundreds and hundreds of pounds. For the next 36 hours, there was nothing but grief and tension for the followers of Jesus. They had no idea what was going to happen. They were flooded with grief. And on top of that, because of the Sabbath and because it had happened so late, they hadn't even been able to properly prepare the body for burial. And so the women were going to have to return on the first day of the week after the Sabbath was over to finish off the work. That's our text for this morning. It's chapter 16 of Mark. And right at the beginning, verse 1. Let's read when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on the way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? Of the tomb. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. <laughs> wow, wow. The beginning of the good news. 
after the crucifixion, but before this, the disciples were scattered. They scattered at the crucifixion, and they were in hiding. Maybe they were just in, hanging out together behind closed doors, partly in fear, but also wondering what to do next. Very few of them had plans for the future because their future was supposed to be following Jesus. They thought they would be going around the country telling this good news that Mark had started with and working and waiting for the kingdom to come. And now they've seen Jesus die. They saw Joseph take the body down and put it in a tomb and they obviously saw it or Mark wouldn't have known to write it down. But they didn't understand what had happened, even though Jesus had told them. Now what do we do? Was the question that was probably on their minds. <laughs> Great. Now what? But the only ones who actually did know what to do next were the women. Because they already knew that they wanted to complete Jesus' burial anointing, and that was the next step. What were they thinking? What was their mindset when they walked toward that tomb on that first Sunday morning? That is not a nice task. That's like going to the funeral home to make the arrangements for a departed loved one. Well, what would there have been? They, they did have, first of all, they had a sense of urgency because they wanted to anoint Jesus and uh, finish the job. Because they, they knew that in, in a hot climate like Palestine, you, you didn't leave the bodies untended because they would begin to decay pretty quickly. So they were in a hurry. And I think that might be why they were going there first thing in the morning. Early, it says early in the morning, just, just enough light to see the path, but not yet bright. But... Even though they hurry, they're, they're, they're downcast, they're dejected because they're hurrying to do a job of, to, or for someone who had died. Their leader and their teacher had died. So it wasn't a happy task. You ever notice the way people walk when they're really sad and they're burdened? Is the, what, have you seen the body language? Their shoulders slump forward. Sometimes the head's looking down, maybe just putting one foot in front of the other. can barely hold their heads up. That's the way they probably were on the way to that tomb. But they might have realized they had a problem. Who on earth would roll that huge stone out of the way? I hadn't even thought about that. What are we going to do? What causes them to look up as they approach the grave? And Matthew says, actually, in his gospel, he says there was a violent earthquake at that point. And so they see and they're shocked and they're startled to find out the stone has already been rolled aside. Oh, not now. Oh, you mean after everything, now the grave robbers beat us? Yeah, but they move closer and they find this young man sitting in the tomb. And they're just, they're alarmed because they're not expecting to see a young man sitting, dressed in white, in a tomb. Not an everyday occurrence. Particularly distressing because they look around and the body is nowhere to be seen. 
Like, do we even have the right grave? And I'm, I'm sure, I was sure this was the one. And so I think he's answering when he answers that uns, that's an unspoken question like that that he's answering. Something along lines, you're looking for Jesus, right? Not just any Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarene guy who was, who was crucified? Um, yeah. <laughs> he has, he's risen. He isn't here. Look, see for yourselves. Take a message to the, his disciples. He's gone ahead to Galilee. You'll see him there. Now, now if, I was, if I was the guy delivering that message to the women, because he knows the truth of this, I would have said, I probably, and I know me, I would have said, didn't he tell you all this stuff already? <laughs> yeah, he did. Well, how would you react? And Mark uses a word in, in the original language, which is the, 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 the Koine Greek, the, the everyday Greek that was around at that time. He uses the word ekstasis to describe the response. E-K-S-T-A-S-I-S, ekstasis. It usually is a word that means just outside of yourself. And it's the word that we also use and translate as ecstasy. It doesn't mean that here. <laughs> what it means is they were absolutely dumbstruck. Like, huh? What? They're shocked, and they're fearful, and they're, they're bewildered by what has happened. Which explains why they don't quietly back away, but they run <laughs> from this guy. And they don't say anything to anybody. They are freaked out. Why? What was in this message that freaked them out so much? Well, it might have been, first of all, the delivery. It was the message of the angel. It might have been the, the, the person standing there. When you think of angels, what do you imagine? Big wings, right? Yeah, maybe. Uh, large wings, halos. I don't know, they always used to put little, little circles of light around them when they painted them. But if you go through the Bible, right from Genesis, right through Revelation, most of the time when a messenger from God appears, he looks basically normal. Normal. Quite human-like. And that's like, like, for example, oh, a young man dressed in white. And so this is an angel sitting in the tomb. They realize it isn't just a young man. Like, what are you doing here? And that's distressing to have an angel appear to you. But knowing why they've come, the angel gives them this message to take to the disciples who who, by the way, were too scared to be out in public at this point. And the message is, is kind of funny when you think about it. Don't be alarmed. What? Why should I not be alarmed? Are you kidding? He's gone, and you're here, and yeah. But I think he wants to reassure them before they all have heart failure. Uh, when Gabriel visited Mary, 
to give her the message that she was going to bear God's very son. It says she was greatly troubled. But Gabriel said, don't be afraid, Mary. You've found favor with God. Anytime an angel appears in the Bible, the reaction and the message is usually the same. Don't be alarmed. So what does he tell them? He's risen. You've got the right tomb. You're just a little late to see Jesus. But he left a voicemail for you. Here's my voice. I'm giving you your mail. Go to Galilee. Go and tell his disciples. Oh, and Peter. He's going to go ahead of you and you'll see him in Galilee. Now that is the message, and the gist of the message is that all four Gospels say this. Not including Peter like Mark did, but, but they all give that. He will meet you in Galilee. But there's something else distinct about Mark's account. Mark's Gospel ends abruptly. It's most Bibles include some sentences at the end of, of uh, what we read today. And actually, in my Bible, and yours might have this too, it has a little bracketed note that says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. And there were actually two endings of Mark that, were, that they found evidence for. One was these nine to t- verses 9 to 20, and another slightly shorter one, both tacked on at the end, well, either one tacked on. And uh, why were they there? Good question. But the thing is, the reliable manuscripts, the ones that they know for certain, don't have them. And then, if you look and understand the grammar and the vocabulary and the style of those next verses, you realize they're not marks. That they, they're, they're very different. And most Bible scholars agree they simply aren't part of the original text. It's tradition that we include them in our Bible. And so, really though, Mark's story ends in verse 8. Well then, why were they added? Because there's a missing element in Mark's Gospel. The missing element is closure. Don't you, what would you do if you get to the library, you take a book out and you read it and it's a wonderful novel and all that and you get to the very end and somebody's ripped out that last page. Oh, now I won't know how the story ends. We want closure. We love, we want to know all the details wrapped up. It's human nature to want to know how the story turns out. But Mark leaves us with more questions than answers. The women, he says, the women ran away and said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Or did they say nothing to anyone? We aren't, it doesn't answer it. Well, we know that Jesus later appeared to the disciples and to over 500 people and stood on a mountaintop in Galilee to commission them and us to make disciples from all nations. But we don't learn that from Mark. The information comes from the other Gospels. But I think 
obviously, I think these, the women recovered and they did tell others. But why did Mark leave it out? We can't read his mind. And that would be dangerous to do because we don't want to put thoughts into somebody and read into something. But there are some possible reasons for it. Uh, it could be that when he was writing his, his memory of the gospel, that the knowledge of Jesus' resurrection was so well known and common that, that everyone would have known the other details. But if you look at Mark's style, think about it. He's not a detail guy. He's a very sparse writer. Think of modern writers who are like that. It's like difference between some of the, uh, the flowery or maybe florid language you get in these novels that gives you every last detail, and Ernest Hemingway, who gave you just the facts, and you've got to fill in the blanks. makes a better story. That's the genius of Mark. Because when no one gives you all the answers, you're challenged to go back and look at what Jesus said, think it through, and draw your own conclusions. Come to the conclusion. He challenges us. You have to think. You have to engage in this. You have to make a decision about Jesus based on what he has already written and believed. Got to make that decision. Requires a response of faith. So instead of telling us, the way Mark, Mark ends challenges us to accept on faith that the tomb was empty because Jesus told us it was going to be empty. That Jesus rose from the dead because he already told us that would, he would be killed and three days later would rise again. He said that in chapter 8. He went on to Galilee, and he'll meet them, us, them there if you, he will meet you there, if you in faith will set out for Galilee to meet him. I wonder what happened to those poor sad sacks that didn't go to Galilee. Faith? When, when I was just discovering this, gospel. There came a point that I knew it was true. I knew it was true. I didn't know how I knew that, but I absolutely knew it was true. That Jesus was who he said he was, that he was God in the flesh, and that his sacrifice was for me. And I had to act. I'm, th I'm thankful that, that I had a great friend named Gary Dirksen who led, led Sue and I to that understanding on a Thursday night. He actually became our first pastor. We have to act on what we know to be true before it has any effect. Does this sound kind of like Jesus? It does, doesn't it? In, what does it say in Revelation 3? Famous, famous. We see this on, we've seen this in a lot of places. The risen Lord Jesus declares, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If you don't open, I'm going to barge in. No, he doesn't say that, does he? 
He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And of course, we know that the imagery there of eating together is a sharing of relationship and fellowship. Eternal life begins with a step of faith. The first step of a living faith about being a disciple of Jesus. Because being a disciple of Jesus requires faith. We don't have all the answers. We never will about some things. But we can trust in faith that what God says is true and live, live according to that. We know but being a disciple of Jesus requires that step of faith, that in Him alone is our salvation. Not going to hedge our bets with something else. That in Him is life. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, you must trust Him as your leader. Because then who's running your life if you don't trust Him? You. That would be pretty dangerous. If all of the good decisions in my life were entirely up to me. A living faith has also been described as one faith step after another, after one before that, after one before that. One after another, after another. All the way to heaven. Let, let's face it. If we knew all the answers, if we had 100% comprehension, we wouldn't have to live by faith, would we? We could just go and say, well, where's the manual? Well, what does that mean? What are some of the elements of that kind of life? Excuse me. I think I'm wearing more water than I got in my mouth, actually. Sorry. <sighs> Different water bottle. Must be the water bottle's fault. It can't be my fault. <laughs> what does having a living faith mean? It means learning to trust God when we don't have all the answers. How many of us have all the answers? I don't know all the answers. But I know Jesus, and I, Jesus knows all the answers. And he is the one who is worthy of my trust. There was a praise song in the 1990s, I think, um, had the lines, When I can't see you, I know you're here. When I can't feel you, I will not fear. I will trust in you, and I will not be afraid. That's pretty good. Yeah, it was a catchy tune. It was kind of, but anyway. But that's the truth of it. Am I going to blow it? Most certainly. And I won't be the first to blow it. Uh, but I won't be the last either. To fail in my attempts to follow God. But, but we know how God feels about failures, right? You can't stand them, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm cheeky this morning. I just No. Um, who was the biggest failure in the disciples? The, uh, except for Judas, because that was different. But Peter. Yeah, Peter. Denied Jesus three times. 
Peter uh, almost ran from a servant girl who looked at him and said, yeah, you're one of those guys, aren't you? Nope, not me. Mm, nope, nope. Denied his Lord. And what did the angel tell the women? Go tell his disciples and Peter. He'll meet you in Galilee. Peter, he wants you there too. He wants you there too. He wanted him to know that he was welcome. So it means learning to trust God when we don't have all the answers. Second thing is it includes knowing that even if we fail, the power of God overcomes our failure. Our relationship, and I'm so thankful for this, our relationship with Jesus does not depend on what we do. It depends on what he did. Um, we can never break that. Oh, some of us have strained it, I'm sure. We can never break that. We can break fellowship, that closeness, by refusing to follow or by doing things that we know aren't right. But we cannot ever break the relationship that he established with us. It doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on you. So what do we do then if we, if we find ourselves feeling pretty distant from God? Not very excited. Uh, maybe just doing enough to cover the guilts, you know. Well, I'm still going to church. But not really following. How do we get close again? Refer back to Mark 1, the, the second scripture that's on the handout in front of you. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. To turn, repent, to say, I agree with what God says, this is wrong. I will turn away from what I'm doing and turn toward him. And to believe is to put it into action. To walk in it. What did Jesus say in the King James? This is the way, walk ye in it. I don't remember exactly where that is, but I remember that phrase. Change our way of living and continue to believe the good news that in Jesus, you you and me, you and I are forgiven. We're restored. The gospel the good news wouldn't be good news if you had to live in fear that you'd blown it and at any moment Jesus come back and you'd be toast. That wouldn't be good news. And it isn't like that. That would make our lives incredibly performance-based and a lot of Christians, good people, beat themselves up because they feel guilty that they're not living the way they ought to. And they're fearful because they know it's not right. But it's God's power that gives me the ability to have eternal life, not mine. And God's power can overcome any failure of mine. God specializes in failures. I walk in, Lord, last week's main failure is here now to talk to you. No, not like that. 
God specializes because he can do and he did what we can't. And that's why he invited Peter with all the others to go to Galilee. Now John, in his gospel, tells the touching story of how Jesus restored Peter he, he, uh, at the side of the lake. And that restored, forgiven failure became the boldest of disciples. He's the one who preached to almost a crowd of estimated 10,000 people on the day of Pentecost. Peter. Peter. The angel told the woman of the tomb, the women, go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going into you, in, ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him. That verse from Mark 16, not verse 1, in, in many ways to me is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ because Jesus, because Peter took that and spread it. And when the women recovered from their shock, they spread that good news too. He's gone ahead of us. And so living as a disciple and having a living faith is shown by the way we respond and follow. Follow him. Um, one of our pastors from a large church in Seattle named uh, North Shore. Uh, he's long, long retired now. I think if he's even still, if he's still not with, if he's, I don't know if he's gone to the Lord yet or not. But anyway, his name is Jan, Jan Heringa. Jan. And he wrote the, a great book called Follow Me, Experiencing the Loving Leadership of Jesus. And I put it on the handout because it, to me it just sums up so much, I think, of what Mark wanted us to get and the message we carry out of here when we go through those doors. He said, and this was in one of the early chapters, once and for all, God revealed himself to be the safe leader. That is, the one who will never trick us into trusting him, and then use and abuse us, and then dump us and move on. He's the one safe leader because he has no ego entwined with his love for us. He does not need us to massage his ego, to support his public image or his opinions. He offers himself to us, both to save us from our sin in the first place, then to empower us to work out our savedness by relying on his love and strength. No, he's not safe in the sense that he indulges our headstrong or blind desires to rule our lives our own way. Not like that. On that count, he's fierce because saving us from ourselves is the point. Oh, thank you, Jan. So whether it's that first baby step of faith to establish your relationship with him or the daily steps of faith he asks of us as his disciples, he invites us to follow him. Will we? He's trustworthy. He's the only one I know that I would trust with my life, and I have. Let's pray. Wow, Lord. <laughs> this is amazing grace. This is amazing love. That you would take my place. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that 
even though we don't know everything. We don't have all the answers, even though there can be things that will greatly distress our culture around us. And we, we will be concerned about things like this virus that spreads. But we will not despair. We will not panic. We will trust you. And Lord, we can do that because you are the one person we can trust. And that is why we give our lives to you. Lead us, Lord, as we go, not just today, but every day as we get out of bed, as we go through our tasks, as we interact with other people that you also love but maybe don't know you, that we might be good news to them, but we also might have the opportunity to tell them the source of our confidence and our hope. You are that source. We will trust in you and not be afraid. We will trust in you and rejoice because we have the best leader in the universe. Because you created it, Lord. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.